So as Christians living in America, we have reason to be concerned about the state of our country, don't we? It's not good, and it seems to be getting worse by the day. With many of the the new executive orders, our president signs the most of any president in the first months of his presidency. And don't don't mistake what I'm saying. This isn't a Trump speech, and all would be well if Trump got elected. That's that's certainly not what I'm saying. The reality is that our country has been experiencing moral decline for decades, hasn't it? Yeah, that's true. Executive orders currently seeking to ban what is called discrimination on the basis of sex-based stereotypes because of how people dress or coming out. Now to raise boys to be boys, to dress like boys, is a sex-based stereotype. That's what that's called. When you raise boys to be men and girls to be women. Another article I read leading up to this morning, which captured the critique of the Roman Catholic leaders against Joe Biden, who's a professed and described as a devout Roman Catholic, accused him of, quote, conflating the goal of racial equality with the imposition of new attitudes and false theories on human sexuality which can produce social harms. All kinds of blatant immorality being redefined as acceptable. Recent executive orders reestablishing the financial support of organizations worldwide that promote abortion as an acceptable option and right of women everywhere. So we're not content to spill the blood of our own unborn here in our own country. Now we're promoting the spilling of the unborn's blood worldwide with our funds, your taxpayers, uh, your taxes at work. It's, it's concerning. And as we think about these things, there's a tendency to be discouraged as Christians. A tendency to maybe dwell too much on our current social and political climate that may lead us to despair and anxiety. And it's not my goal to do that this morning, to just continue to unleash all of the news. We get enough of that during the week. It's unsettling. We need to come away from that today and to be reminded of what God has to say, not what President Biden says, not what our political leaders say or think, not what our culture is dictating to us, a redefined and twisted morality, but what does God say? What does He say is right? What does He say is wrong? And to be refreshed by that, and also be refreshed by who He is and to be reminded of who He is. We need to continually examine our focus and what kinds of things our minds and hearts are meditating on. We need to recognize that the more we're preoccupied with the world and with all of the anti-God and anti-Christian things happening around us, the more we will be unsettled and worried. Well, what is the remedy? What kinds of things should we be thinking about? Well, we should be thinking about the Lord, shouldn't we, brethren? It says in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, you keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind, whose thoughts, whose meditation 
is stayed on you. If you want to be guarded against anxiety and concern and being unsettled, you've got to get your thoughts on God, on what He's like, on what He's doing, and what He means to us as His people. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Everything around us is changing. Our culture is changing. Our country isn't the same, is it? It's constantly changing. And we need stability. If we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be, uh, you know, have, have healthy thoughts and have a healthy mindset and demeanor, we need an everlasting rock, and that is the Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this sermon, I'm going to tell you, was born out of a conversation I was having with Pastor, Pastor Nichols. You know, he, he'll ask us, if you have any thoughts about what I should preach on, you know, let me know. So I, I had an idea. I was finishing up some ministry that he had done on the doctrine of God, and particularly the one on the names of God, the message on the names of God as he was going through the attributes, and he was discussing the name Adonai in the Bible, and I thought, you know, this would be a great theme for him to preach to us on. So I brought it to his attention. I said, this is a great idea. You should bring us some of that material from the doctrine of God you did. Why don't you preach it? He said, well, why don't you preach it? Sounds good. So here I am this morning. So that's my disclaimer. <laughs> he could do it much better than me, but he's charged me to do it, and I'm glad to, to hopefully be ministering to him this morning. So Three things, the meaning of Adonai, and I think that's all we're going to get done this morning. The manifestation of Adonai, and then the ministry of Adonai. So the meaning of Adonai in the Bible as one of the names of God. And studying God's names in the Scripture is a rich study. Each of His names tells us about Him. He didn't just give himself those names because they sounded good. They appealed to him. I understand that's why we may name our children the certain names that we give them. There sometimes isn't a lot of meaning behind it, which is fine. That's not true with God. Every time he speaks of himself and gives himself another name by which he wants to be known by, it says something about who he is. It tells us something about His character. And as we pray to Him, and as we use these names that He has manifest, manifested his, Himself with, it's good for God's people to be reminded of His attributes, of what He's like, of how amazing He is, of how great He is. To have a biblically informed understanding of God comforts us, brethren. That's what this name should do for His people. And also has a sanctifying effect upon us. I think as we consider this name Adonai, that's one of the effects it will have upon us. Studying the character of God is, is very humbling. And it can also be terrifying for those who do not know Him. The God of the Bible is not a God, as you read about Him, you want against you. He is a God that you want for you, on your side, as your God, and not as someone you want to contend with. 
I love how General James Mattis describes American Marines. And his description of an American Marine is really ultimately true about God. No better friend, no worse enemy. That's ultimately true of the Lord. You can have no better friend. If He is for you, who can be against you? But if He's against you, you have a real problem. And as we read about His character revealed by this name, I think you'll see that this morning. So the definition of Adonai, as we look at just the word and its meaning, it's from the root word Adon in the Hebrew, which means master or lord. It's used to describe the person in a relationship who is in a position of authority. So you'll find Adon used in the Old Testament to describe parents in positions of authority over their children or in relationship to their children. Husbands being put in a position of leadership and in a position of authority over their wives in that relationship. Masters or employers. And, and then, of course, rulers. Those who've been given uh, political power to rule over people and nations. So it has this sense of being master and lord. Adonai is the emphatic form of Adon. The name depicts Jehovah, and I'm quoting from, from Pastor Nichols' lecture, this name depicts Jehovah our God as our supreme master and ruler who provides for us, to whom we owe ultimate allegiance, and to whom all men ultimately will give an account. So there's rulers in the world, but then there's the supreme master, the supreme ruler, not just of one nation, not just of one person, not just of a wife, not just of children in one family, but the supreme ruler and master, not just of the world, but of the universe, who rules over everything he has made, to whom everyone is accountable, including everyone here this morning. One day we will stand before Him, the judge of all the earth, and we will give an account for our lives. Supremely accountable, not to the local government in Catskill, Kingston, wherever you live, not to our federal government, but supremely under the authority of God Almighty. Ezekiel 2.4, I'm sending you, Ezekiel, to them, speaking of his people, who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, Adonai, the supreme ruler of the universe. They were to make no mistake that when Ezekiel preached, he was preaching on behalf of the supreme ruler and Lord of all things. And what was that to communicate to the people who heard those messages? We better listen. We better pay attention. This isn't just Ezekiel. This is God speaking. He's speaking to us. This is a message from heaven. 
The rebellion of Israel, in other words, is not against Nebuchadnezzar throwing off his reign, but the supreme ruler of the universe. The word of Ezekiel, the word of the prophet, the word that we have preserved for us in our Bible is the word of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But when I speak to you, God goes on further to speak to Ezekiel, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says Adonai Yahweh, Adonai Jehovah. He who hears, let him hear. And he who refuses, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel 3, 27. And God has to remind His people who He is. Remind His people He's not just their God and their ruler, but the supreme ruler of the world and of the universe. Put some weight on the word you're hearing from Ezekiel. Adonai reveals God to be the supreme ruler of the universe and the world. He's the king of kings. In other words, as we read in Scripture, the Lord of lords, all of those in positions of authority on earth, in other words, are subject to God's supreme and majestic authority. Ultimately, it is God, and to God we owe obedience. And it is God's, and it is God's rule that all men are to respect and obey, and obey above all. Ezekiel and all the prophets spoke with authority because they spoke the words of him who is Adonai. And brethren, the word of God is still authoritative today. It still carries that same weight and authority when you hear the word. Well, Adam's preaching today. Pastor Nichols is preaching next week. Pastor Sarver's preaching the week after that. Don't get caught up on the messenger and forget who is sending them. Because faithful preaching, biblical preaching, is not Adam's word, Pastor Nichols' word, or Pastor Sarver's word. Faithful preaching is going to bring to you what God has to say on any given subject. It's going to reveal to you what He's like. The names He wants to be known by. What He requires of us. What He thinks about America. What He thinks about the laws that are being put into place in our country. What does God think about our culture? That's what you're hearing when you come to hear faithful biblical preaching. And that's what we all aspire to in this place. We want to bring you not our own Word, but the Word of Him who sent us. The Word that we've been studying and trying to understand ourselves and put into some type of a form that's going to make sense and is going to help you and edify and, and feed you. And brethren, don't ever settle for anything less than the Word of the Lord being preached from the pulpit. If you want entertainment and you want to laugh primarily, go listen to a comedian. That's their job. If you want a great story, not to say stories can't be used in the proclamation of the Word. Jesus, the Prince of Preachers, used them all the time. And stories can be used to communicate God's Word. But you understand the point. When you come to this place, you want to hear from God. The message ought to be preached authoritatively. You see, we're not just throwing out a verse, and we're not just throwing out an idea and pulling all of our thoughts to see what you know it says and to see what we think it might say. And anybody's idea is just as good as the next person. And we got to come to a collaborative effort to figure this whole thing out. 
It's a message from God that we want, and it's a message from God that we find in the pages of Scripture. It's authoritative. It's to be authoritatively preached, and it's to be received as such. We should put weight on it as the word of the supreme ruler of the universe. Every other position of authority, in other words, as we learn about this attribute of God, every other position of authority is derived from Him. He alone is the supreme ruler of all. And that's true of our own president. He may be the most powerful leader among men on earth, but he too is under the authority of the supreme ruler of the universe, and one day he will give an account. Pray for your president. He is in an awesome position of responsibility. And he'll give an account for everything he has signed into law. And we need to pray for a a Nebuchadnezzar-like humbling to come upon him and our other political leaders. Well, the frequency of the name Adonai, I want to talk a little bit about that. So we looked a little into the meaning of it or definition of it. Still under the meaning of the word, the frequency of the name in the Old Testament. And again, these are things coming from the lecture, some of them. It's used 434 times in the Old Testament, we find it. But there's an obvious and disproportionate use of the name in three Old Testament books. We find it used proportionally higher in Lamentations, in Amos, and in Ezekiel. And in these books especially, the Holy Spirit wants this name of God to be used again and again so that people will be reminded of His position as the supreme ruler of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we might ask, why is that the case? And from the lectures and from other uh, resources that were brought into the lecture, it was, it was discussed that, that why Amos? Well, Amos preached and prophesied in a time when Israel was, was relatively prosperous and was in, uh, experiencing a season of peace in the nation. And what had happened is you had this upper class that, that came about in Israel, And essentially, the rich were abusing the poor. And as Amos is preaching about the supreme ruler of the universe, he's reminding God's people in a time of peace and prosperity of the supreme ruler of the world and of them to whom they will give an account. And probably especially to those who were in positions of power and who had authority to be very careful. God's going to hold you accountable for how you're treating your fellow men in Israel. Lamentations. It's not hard to imagine why God wants His people, especially Jeremiah, and those who were of the remnant of His people, to be reminded of who He is as the supreme ruler. What happened that provoked the writing of Lamentations? Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Israel and of Jerusalem. They've completely been stripped away and taken to Babylon. 
There is no nation of Israel. The temple is destroyed. It's burned to the ground. All of the important buildings within Jerusalem were completely demolished by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. All of the temple gold and brass and precious metals were cut apart, including the bronze pillars and dragged to Babylon. Completely desecrated. No temple. Solomon's temple completely razed. And if that weren't enough, they destroyed the walls surrounding Jerusalem. They were sending a message, weren't they? Utter and complete destruction came upon Jerusalem the third time the Babylonians came to town. And that time was going to be the last. And they completely broke the nation's spirit and stripped them of their dwelling. And Jeremiah warned them it was going to happen. Called them to repent his whole ministry. Same with Ezekiel. But they would not listen. And God followed through with his plan. And God judged them. There is no nation. And Jeremiah and other believers, God-fearers, the remnant of Israel, were being reminded through lamentations that even though Israel doesn't exist, I still exist. And I have a purpose in all of this. And I will never leave you nor forsake you, though your city and temple is gone. And it would have brought comfort to Jeremiah's heart and mind to be reminded that the God he preached for and the God he served, the book is not, being, is not finished yet. There's another chapter and God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. Though there's no nation and though he had no idea in some sense, he saw through a mirror dimly how they were going to get out of this and how God's purposes could be fulfilled in all of this. He believed and trusted in the supreme ruler, the king of kings, to work out his purposes even under these lamentable circumstances. And you might begin to see why this kind of encouraged me and you know why I thought it would be good for us all to think about this name in light of our current circumstances politically. The name of Adonai in Ezekiel. This is really where I want to focus. And we're going to take at least one other message, maybe two more, to, to go through this. When you look at the frequency of the name of Adonai in the Old Testament, 434 times total, you discover the name being used 221 times in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the name is mentioned, and, and God wants His this name to be mentioned again and again, more so than all of the rest of the Old Testament combined. Again and again, Adonai, Jehovah. Adonai, Jehovah. Adonai, Jehovah is mentioned again and again and again. Now again, we alluded to the background of Ezekiel. I'm going to get a little bit more into this so that you can understand by the context uh, the book a little bit better and this whole uh, point of emphasizing Adonai a little bit better. The, books, the book Ezekiel contains the prophecies, of course, and messages from God 
during a time when Israel was conquered and taken away by the foreign nation of Babylon. We read in the first verse of Ezekiel, his first vision was received in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's exile. Now we know that Jehoiakim was taken to Babylon in the second Babylonian deportation around 597 B.C. And about 11 years later, the final destruction of Jerusalem by a grueling two-year siege happened. The temple gold and bronze was all taken back or taken to Babylon at that time. The temple and all the important buildings, the city raised, burned down as I've alluded to. Most of the prophecies in the beginning of Ezekiel were given before this final destruction of Jerusalem around 586 B.C. So they were written and they were preached at one of the lowest and most humbling times in Israel's history. The nation lost its autonomy. The people were living at the mercy of foreign rulers, dispersed and scattered, not just to Babylon, but if Jews could get out before that, they were all over pretty much the then known world. They were at the mercy of foreign rulers and who worshipped false gods in foreign lands. All of this judgment on Israel happened because of their sin. And after years of hearing faithful prophetic preaching to repent and turn back to God, to avoid the wrath to come, the people would not listen, did not listen, and were judged. And it's amazing that after the first and second deportation, Jehoiakim is in Babylon, Ezekiel's in Babylon, Daniel and his friends were also taken to Babylon during the second deportation. So they're already being judged. They're already being stripped of their most important people, people like Daniel who were incredibly gifted. All of the best of the best were already being taken from the land, even having experienced that. And before the third and final destruction, the people of Israel are still living in rebellion. Even that didn't get them to think twice about their sin. It's like a child who's spanked once and twice and like still doesn't get it. And they're being spanked. They're in the process of being disciplined. And they're still hardened in their sin and not listening to the Word of God. Jeremiah had an incredible ministry. So did Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, this ministry is going to be essentially like sitting on scorpions for you. It's going to be like getting caught in briars and thorn bushes. You're going to preach and it's going to be like you're running through a field that's full of thorny bushes where you get snagged, and, 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 but, but I want you to run. That's what your ministry is going to be like. But preach it nonetheless. Preach it nonetheless. Preach my word, no matter what the response. Many of Ezekiel's prophecies were received and delivered to the people of Israel in this time, during the second half of Zedekiah's reign and before the final destruction of Jerusalem. Turn to Ezekiel 36.
I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 36. Wrong passage. I'm, I'm eager to get to Ezekiel with you all. But let's do 2 Chronicles 36. I want to read a couple of verses there just to give you an idea of the condition here. Zedekiah was 21 years old at 2 Chronicles 36.11 when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Now Zedekiah was Jeconiah's uncle. Jeconiah was already taken to Babylon at this point in time. And Zedekiah was put in charge after he was taken to Babylon. Verse 14, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So you've got political corruption. You've got corruption in the church. Even the priests were not listening to God at this point in time. Even the priests were guilty of sin. The Lord, the God of their fathers, verse 15, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people. And then this is an exceedingly sad clause. Until there was no remedy. Preaching to repent and believe. Preaching to turn from your sin and believe. Avoid the wrath to come. You're being warned again and again through the preaching of the Word of God. Why? Because God's compassionate. And He doesn't want to damn you. He doesn't want you to go to hell. And in Ezekiel he even says it. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God was not waiting anxiously to destroy Jerusalem. I can't wait till 586 comes and I finally demolish this city. He wasn't looking forward to it. He wasn't happy about it. It wasn't something he took pleasure in. To see these Israelites punished. Loving parents don't enjoy spanking their kids, disciplining their children. They do it because they know it's good for their kids, but they don't delight in it. Neither does God. And so He sends messengers to Israel, and He sends them today. Today's a day of grace. Today's a day where you can find forgiveness. You're a sinner. You're alienated from God. That's a serious thing. But there's forgiveness with God that He may be feared. Jesus died on the cross so that you could avoid going to hell. So that you could be saved. And even today, sinners are being warned through the preaching of the Word of God. The wrath of God is going to come upon the world. This day of grace is going to be over at some point. But you have a chance this morning and today to repent and believe and be saved. Don't wait another day. Don't wait till it's too late. Don't wait until what happened to Israel happens to you and there is no remedy. That's pretty scary. 
Proverbs 1 speaks about what people will experience when the remedy is gone and it's too late. It's one of the scariest chapters in all of the Bible. Gospel is preached again and again, but you wouldn't listen. And One day you'll want to hear it again. One day you'll want that opportunity again, but it won't be there anymore. This was the condition. So you got political corruption. You see your nations pretty much being destroyed and taken away by Babylon. It's just, it's inevitable it's going to happen. There's corruption in the church. The state was deplorable, wasn't it? Of Israel. Well, we can relate to this in our own country. Can we? I mean, we don't get a lot of comfort when we turn on the news. You know, we kind of, it's kind of like, you know, forced labor. You got to turn it on because you got to be educated. You got to, you got to read some articles so you know what's going on around you, right? But it's like, it's always that thing. Like, you don't want to read too much because you know you'll be completely discouraged. And then you turn on the TV and there's Joel Olstein. And 40,000 people in his arena. You look to the church. And you see all of these preachers, your best life now, preaching peace, peace. Everything's good and great for you. Let's make your life even better. People are flocking to hear it, want their ears tickled. And, and the church isn't even, really, by and large, sounding the alarm and faithfully preaching the Word of God. Thank God there's a remnant. Praise God for that. There certainly was in His day. Ezekiel was one of them. Jeremiah was one of them. There was a remnant. Praise be to God. But for that remnant, living through that time in Israel's history, brethren, the temptation to discouragement was immense. The temple was the place of God's dwelling on earth, and now it was gone. Right? This was the condition at the time of his preaching. Who's Ezekiel to? Think about who he was. He's described in the first couple of verses as the priest, son of Buzi. He was of the Levitical line. He was looking forward to be a, being a priest in the temple, and soon there would be no temple. And even if there was, he wasn't there anymore. Eleven years before the temple was gone, he was taken to Babylon. Ten years before he could finally become a priest and serve God in the temple, he was taken away to Babylon. He was taken far from the temple with no hope of serving as a priest in the temple. According to Numbers 4 and 9, the men of Levi would begin their priestly service in the tabernacle at the age of 30, and they retired at 50. And they still got to help in the service of the temple, but it seems to me their labor in the temple and all of the physical work and all the attendance of the temple was left to those men who, lit, who, were, who were between the ages of 30 and 50 years old. And he would not have that opportunity to serve in the temple. Well, why would he want to? Because Ezekiel was a God-fearing believer who grew up in a God-fearing home. We read about this in Ezekiel 4.14. He responds to one of the requests of God and he says, Ah, Adonai, Jehovah, behold, I have never been defiled, for from my youth until now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. 
Here's this God-fearing Jew, son of a priest. He's going to become a priest, looking forward to that. Now finds himself in Babylon. One of the darkest times in the history of Israel. The glories departed. Soon the temple will be gone. For a Jew living in those days, that was absolutely devastating if you love God. What's going to become of the light of the world? It looks like it's getting really, really dim, doesn't it? It's a dark time in the history of Israel. And so this name is brought to the forefront. None of these changes in Israel changed God. He's still the supreme ruler. He's still active in creation. He's still working out His purposes. Though the wrong seems often strong, I am the ruler. God says to Ezekiel and to God fears living in his generation. So a few observations as we close. Ezekiel is a reminder that though by and large the nation of Israel rebelled against God, he still had a remnant of those who believed in that nation. He has brethren always had his people in every generation. And the gates of Hades never have, never will prevail against him. Always he's had a people. Always he's had a remnant. Ezekiel's an encouragement. He's one of them. You know the others. Daniel, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, trying to serve God in a fallen culture. Standing alone for God when even their friends from back in Israel are compromising. Standing for God, trusting in God, believing in God. He had his Jeremiah's. His remnant of God-fearers still on the earth. Though their number was few. And it's true today too. It doesn't matter how small the church is. Now we don't have an accurate understanding of what that remnant looks like. It's far greater now than it was in Ezekiel's day. Far greater now. And it's amazing when, when the nations seem, seek to rage against God and the church. It, God just laughs and blesses His church with the Spirit and makes more disciples. Right under the communist regimes of places like China and other places in the world. He'll always have a remnant. Secondly, maybe Ezekiel, you, you, think, you think about this. Now, Ezekiel is a God-fearer growing up in a, a God-fearing home in the line of the Levitical priesthood. But we read about what's happening with the priests and the prophets in Israel at this time. We read about what's, what's happening in temple worship and the priests are even corrupt. I mean, why was Ezekiel looking forward to this? Well, well, maybe, just maybe, Ezekiel and his family were trying to reform the sinful practices of the temple when God took them away. Maybe that was going to be his goal. 
to come back into the temple and to be a godly influence and bring it back to the place it needed to be, we do not know. What seems to me to be clear is that God-fearing Jews in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day mourned over the spiritual condition of Israel and the Babylonian captivity and judgment of God. And the judgment of God was not a surprise given the hard-hearted condition of their countrymen. Just like we mourn over the spiritual condition of our nation and even the spiritual state of so many churches, like many of the priests and prophets in Ezekiel day, Preaching peace, peace to Israel when there's no peace. As if sin was no big deal. You can have sin and have heaven too. It's no big deal. You don't have to repent. You don't have to turn for it from it. Never dealing with sin in the ranks. Never holding Christians accountable to their profession to live godly in this world and in Christ Jesus. No church membership that's clearly identified. No desire, no interest in even thinking about biblical discipline. And holding people accountable to that. And so you've got people in the church, sometimes they look worse than the world. It's discouraging sometimes, isn't it? And we mourn over it. The condition of Israel in general and of those charged to be the spiritual conscience of the nation were in a deplorable condition and it grieved the heart of godly Israel. No chance to reform the temple practices. And soon God would remove even the temple from Israel. The glory was departed. And he would have known what that discouragement was like. He needed to be uplifted. He needed to be encouraged by God. That he is in control. That everything's going to be okay. Thus the name Adonai. Repeated again and again. Not just for his hearers, but for his own heart. There is no doubt, thirdly, that the visions of God to Ezekiel and his repeated reference to himself as Adonai Jehovah primarily communicated encouragement and hope to the believing remnant in Babylon facing such dark spiritual and political circumstances. They needed to be reminded of his continued rule and authority in heaven and on earth, of his continued power to bring about all of his purposes through Israel. They were reminded of what the hymn of the sons of Korah penned years before. They were reminded of this truth, truths that we find in places like Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. That's a great verse for us to be reminded of, isn't it? God's plans are not going to be thwarted no matter what our country does, no matter if our country exists or not. He will be exalted, brethren, among the nations and in the earth. He will get a name from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue, no matter what political forces come against Him. The Lord of hosts is still with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And he was teaching Ezekiel and other believers that it's not Israel or the temple or Jerusalem that they need. That all they need is God. So Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon destroy the temple. They destroy the walls around Jerusalem. They raise the city and guess what? 
God still comes down from heaven to earth. Where does He come? To where His people are. To where His people are, right? This was the first place God appeared to the people of Israel. Stephen talks about it in Acts 7. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram. Where? In Mesopotamia. Before Babylon was Babylon, that area of the world was Mesopotamia. That's where Ur was. And now the God of glory is appearing to Ezekiel and Daniel and his true people, no matter where they are. The temple's gone, but God is still on earth. The most important place to be is not a temple, not a church building, but where God is. Why does God come here? Because you're here, brother. Now God follows His people wherever they go. Wherever two or three are gathered in His name, Jesus says, there I am in the midst. That's what He's teaching these Israelites. They put all their hope of God's presence and all of their hope in the nation. When it was really their hope should have been in the God of the nation. And this is an encouragement to Ezekiel the priest who would have ministered in the presence of God, the special presence of God. He got more of the presence of God in Babylon than he probably ever would in the temple. God comes to him in a vision. We're going to, we're going to consider it next time in chapter 1. And in the presence of this glorious God, he gets to see a vision of him in all of his glory. A mighty God warrior riding upon a chariot unlike anything this world has ever built, propelled by the cherubim and angels. Incredible display of the glory of God. Words fail him to describe it. And in this incredible presence of God, he's flattened on his face. Just like the priests were when the glory came down on the temple and filled it, the priests fell on their face. Here he is in Babylon, a foreign city, with wicked gods and wicked idolaters. But the Lord is meeting with His people because He's the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Because He goes where His people are. Where they call upon Him in truth. We'll see this more next time, as I said, when we look at that vision. Though God sent the Israelites away from Israel and would soon destroy the temple, the supreme ruler was still with them. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Solomon said when he finished his glorious temple, how much less this house that I have built. God doesn't need that temple. He came wherever his people were. And it's the same thing today. He's not found in a church building per se but with the living church, the people, His people, whenever and wherever they are gathered in His name. What a comfort to us. No matter if the country exists or not, we always talk about our religious freedoms. And they are important, and we should cherish them, and we should fight for them. We should use every ounce of influence we have as American citizens to preserve those freedoms. I'm not saying that we, sh we shouldn't do that. I have a son who wants to go into the military to protect those freedoms. God being with us is not dependent on religious freedom. You understand that? 
whether the government gives us the right legally to gather and worship God is not going to keep God from, ever, from, from being with his people. It's not up to the government. And it's not up to this church building. If we weren't able to meet publicly in a church building like this, God will still meet with us wherever we meet. He will be with us. He will never leave us, nor forsake us, nor did he leave the remnant that was in Babylon in Ezekiel's day. He's the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, and he comes down to meet with his people whenever they call upon him in truth. Nebuchadnezzar was not in charge. He was their immediate and earthly ruler in Babylon, but God was their ultimate king who ruled from heaven and earth. And brethren, we just need to be reminded of this. We need to remind, be reminded of what he's like, of who he is, of his supreme position and power. We're going to see the manifestation of his glory in Ezekiel 1. Read it this afternoon if you want, ahead of time, as we prepare to open it up the next time we get together. This God in Ezekiel 1, is not going to be overcome by anyone or anything. The nations before this God are like a drop in a bucket. And our hope and our stability and our confidence comes from Him and not the political climate that we're in. May the Lord help us, brethren, to be still and know that He is God and bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray.